Well, the holidays are a lively time to be on Facebook, aren't they? Uh, it's one of those times where you sit in front of the, your computer screen and you just have this, your, your screen, your Facebook newsfeed is awash with Christmas greetings and wish lists and funny videos and quotes from your kids and, and then days later it's Happy New Year's and here's my resolution. But there's so much stuff that comes through over the holidays. It was absolutely fascinating. But the, probably the most interesting thing that I saw over the entire Christmas, New Year kind of holiday. It was this quote that popped up on my screen this week that said, on my newsfeed, it said, it doesn't matter how big your house is or how recent your car or how big your bank account, everybody's grave is always the same size. Stay humble. And I thought, there was just something, it was oddly morbid and yet somewhat inspiring and it was just like it was just one of those things that just caught me right at the right moment I thought I really like that and so I did what you're supposed to do on Facebook right when you see something you like you go down to the big thumbs up and I was just about to I was just about to click that I like this and noticed for whatever reason just saw 530,102 people had liked it before me it's like I didn't, it just kind of took me by surprise. Over a half a million people have read this quote and thought, you know what? I like this. And then once I saw that number, my next thought I had was, I don't think I'm going to click the like button. I, what, what would I gain from being the 530,103rd person to say, this quote's awesome? A little while ago, I read an article that actually answered, the when I started to reflect on it, answered the question for me. Clicking that like button gives me exactly the same thing that clicking every other like button that I've ever clicked on Facebook has given me, which gives me exactly the same thing that every single profile update, status update, and news post on my wall has ever given me from Facebook. It is the only thing that Facebook delivers, the product that Facebook supplies to its users. Self-affirmation. That's what Facebook is. Actually, I was reading two articles, um, and the one said that Facebook is like a technologically enhanced mirror that reflects our preoccupation with our image, with updating our image, and with gauging other people's reaction to our image. That's what Facebook is about. It's about putting out there in a public environment the kind of person you are and allowing other people to react to you. That's what we do on Facebook. We constantly enhance our sense of who we are and the life that we're living and we put it out there for people to react to and the most important reaction is the click of the like button to say, I like who you are. I like what you like. I like the life you're living. I like where this is going. It's self-affirmation. That's the product Facebook supplies. It's usually, I'd never thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true. The interesting thing is the study, this article had said that a study had proven that people struggling with self-esteem when given the opportunity to use Facebook for an extended period of time come out of it with an elevated sense of satisfaction, happiness, and contentment. It's about receiving affirmation for who you are. We become this culture 
that's dependent on other people, on looking to the people around us to, to say, am I okay? Will you like me? Is this good? Is the direction that I'm heading the kind of thing that you would support? Will you affirm me? Do you like this? The question that emerges as we turn to our text this morning in my head is how does that affect the way we do our life with God? This preoccupation with the affirmation of others. For those of you who are just joining us, who maybe came during the holidays and are now joining us in the new year or who are just new to to uh, Southridge or haven't been around that long, we've been exploring as a community over the last while at a very, quite a leisurely pace. We've been exploring the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, the one that most people usually call the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, at least the part that we've been exploring so far, a good degree of Jesus' focus in the sermon has been on what he calls righteousness, which simply means what it looks like to live in a right relationship with God, a right relationship with yourself, a right relationship with the people around you, and a right relationship with the world. That's righteousness. And Jesus, way back in the intro of his sermon, we studied this quite a while ago, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That if you want to experience God's blessing in your life, if you want to experience a life of fullness and contentment and the life you always wanted obsess yourself with seeking out what it looks like to live in right relationship with God, yourself, people in the world. And then this last little section in November, December, we were looking at it. Jesus unpacks what that looks like, what it looks like to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says it's not about religious rule keeping or religious performance or some external conformity to a you know, religious standard or whatever. Righteousness is about living life out of a heart that is filled with love. Love for God, love for people, love for the world. The kind of love that destroys conflict through reconciliation and undermines lust through respect. And the, the kind of love that saves marriages and changes lives by the way it speaks the truth. The kind of love that responds to insult and injury with generosity and does that for everybody, enemies and friends alike. Jesus says, you want to experience the fullness of a life with God. Obsess yourself with righteousness. Well, this morning we start a new series called God Likes This. And we're going to turn to the next section of this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus continues this conversation about righteousness, but he does it from a different angle. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus says, let's, he says, let's talk about righteousness from a different angle. This time, not like in November and December, not in our horizontal relationships with each other, living rightly with each other. This time, in our vertical relationship with God. What it looks like to live rightly in relationship with God. And the way Jesus is going to explore this kind of vertical righteousness is to explore the three central acts of Jewish piety. The three core 
religious activities that every devout and faithful religious Jew would have engaged in in the first century world. Giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. You know, abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Jesus says, listen, let's talk about what it looks like for you to live your religious life with God, the way you do your religious behaviors. He could have talked about going to worship, reading the Bible, being vulnerable with your community, serving the poor. He could have talked about any number of things. But he, he says, in the way you do things like these, like giving, like praying, like fasting, he says, be careful not to do them in order to be seen by others. In exactly the same way that Jesus was concerned in November and December about the heart as much as anything else, Jesus says, listen, it's your motivation that counts. Do your acts of religious piety out of a heart that's filled with love, not a heart that is looking for recognition from the people around you. He says, if you do, if you live that way, if you live your religious life as a play that you're putting on for the audience of the people you know, for their approval and applause, if you, if you treat your religious life as a publicity stunt to enhance your reputation or a PR campaign to advance your standing in people's opinions or in the community, if, if that's how you live, if you live for people's thumbs up, if you live for their approval, he says you can get that. They may approve of you. They may recognize you. They may honor you. They may uh, elevate you. They may uh, respect you for how religious and devout you are. You may be rewarded by them. Just don't expect anything from God. He says, you've already received your reward. The word reward is a word the Greeks used to write on receipts in the marketplace. It means paid in full. This is Jesus' point. He says, listen, if you live your religious life, <coughs> excuse me, if you live your religious life for what people will say, if you live it for the approval of the crowds, if you live it for the applause of the people around you, and you get it, you've been paid in full. God owes you nothing. You didn't do it for him. You did it for them. And they rewarded you. That's Jesus' point. Now he says, now he wants to apply it. Because what does this look like? So what does that mean? What does that look like in our regular, everyday, spiritual lives and the way that we live with God? He goes on, he says, Matthew 6, verse 2. So, okay, there's my principle. Don't live your religious life in order to please people or for the approval of the crowds. Live it for God. So, he says, when you give to the needy, dot, dot, dot. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been battling this cold here. Um, the Greek uh, construction for people who are smarter than me, when Jesus says, when you give to the needy, it's obvious in Greek that what he means is whenever you give to the needy. He doesn't mean, you know, I understand that periodically, Every once in a while, you do something for somebody who's less than you. What he means, what Jesus means is, listen, I understand that you're engaged in a lifestyle 
of giving to those who have less. It was, a, it was an assumption of Jewish spirituality that anyone who had anything was giving something to people of nothing. That was, a, that was just commonplace assumption in Jewish spirituality. In fact, giving to the poor was such an elevated form of religious piety. The rabbis used to say that the person who gives to the poor is the same as the one who sacrifices in the temple. It was as important as worship to give to the poor. So Jesus doesn't have to say, listen, you really should be giving, and when you're giving, do that. What Jesus says, listen, I know you're giving. And whenever you give, do it this way and not that way. There were two kinds of giving that the Jews usually practiced. The first kind had to do with the giving that happened um, at worship. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, 22, it says, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce every year. That tenth of everything you earn, everything you produce, the tenth of everything you gain in a year, was to be brought to either the synagogue or the temple and to be given over to God. It was called the tithe. It just means the tenth. (coughs) The tithe was to be used for a couple of purposes. Three, really. Um, The one was to pay for the overhead of what it costs to run a temple or to run a synagogue, to just keep the facility and to make sure that it was able to put on the religious services. Secondly, it was used to pay the people who performed the religious services, to pay the salaries of those who were engaged in nurturing the spiritual life of Israel. And they were expected, by the way, to tithe on the money they received from the tithe, which is exactly the same expectation that we have on our staff. Uh, And thirdly, it created a fund at the synagogue or at the temple that was used to support widows and orphans and the fatherless and the immigrant and basically everybody who had nobody to take care of them. That's what the tithe did. But then outside of bringing you know, your 10% to the temple or the synagogue every year, what the Jews would do is that in their regular rhythms of life, they would just give to people as they saw need. In Matthew 23, Jesus is criticizing some folks for neglecting that part of their spirituality. He says, woe to you, teachers, law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of even your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. He says, you're so meticulous about your tithing. You'll you'll take a tenth of your cumin plant out of your garden and bring it to the temple. It's like if you found a dime on the street, you'd bring a penny to the church. You're so careful about your tithing. But he says, you should not have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. The expectation was that beyond the tithe that you brought to worship, that in your everyday life, generosity over what God had given you was spilling over to to the lives of the people who had less. That you were being a generous person with those in need. It was critical, a central part of Jewish spirituality, this idea of giving. They gave The Jews did, they gave uh, for God reasons. They gave for all kinds of reasons, but primarily they gave for God reasons. It was an act of worship. It was a way of bringing the tenth to the temple, for example, and saying, you know what, God, I know that everything I have comes from you. You gave it to me. All that I have comes from you. I don't take that for granted. Thank you. It's a way of saying thank you. 
It was a way of, of living out your submission to God. Say, listen, uh, everything I have is yours. You've asked me to bring the 10% here. I, I'm bringing this as an act of submission, as a way of saying, listen, everything I have is yours, not just the 10. Everything I have is yours to be used for your purposes. However you will, God, tell me how to use your money that you've given me. They gave for God reasons. They gave for spiritual growth reasons. It was good for their spirit to give. It, it grew their faith. It was a way of saying, you know what, God? Because everything I have comes from you, I trust that if I am faithful to you, you will be faithful to me and you will continue to provide for me. I don't have to hoard in fear that there won't be enough. I can bring the 10% and give it to you and trust you to provide everything that I need. It was a way of keeping life in perspective. A way of saying to God, you know what, God? You matter more than, to me than all this stuff. This is just stuff. You can have it. You, you are what I want, not this. It grew their spirit. It, it, there were generosity reasons, like Jesus said, justice. Of just remembering that life isn't fair, and oftentimes we end up on the good side of the unfairness. We end up with more, and others end up with less. And this sort of generosity was the Jews' way of saying, you know what? I'm going to redefine what I think is enough so that everybody can have enough because that's fair. It was a compassion thing. A way of saying, I care about you. Look, <coughs> your suffering matters to me. I hurt when you hurt. I hate it when you suffer. And I'm going to do what I can to relieve some of that. There were a lot of spiritual dynamics at work in the giving that they practiced regularly and faithfully in the temple and to the poor. But Jesus says this, listen, I know that you're all giving, but when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus says, listen, I don't think anybody ever really actually blew a trumpet at the synagogue or on the street before they gave money, you know, in the offering bag at church or, you know, whatever. I don't think anybody actually blew a trumpet. Jesus was saying, listen, when you give, don't do it in such a way that you draw all sorts of attention to yourself. Don't do it to be recognized, to be honored for being such a generous person. Don't do it for the impression that it creates or for the approval of the people around you. Don't give because it'll put your name on the wing of a building or your name on the plaque on a wall or your name on a paper star at the checkout counter. Don't give to get the thank you. Don't give to get the hug. Don't give to get the gift back in appreciation. Don't give to get the tax receipt. There's a motivation challenging kind of question, would we still give if there was no tax receipt? Why are we giving? Jesus says, don't give because of what you're gonna get back from giving. Some people don't give, give to get recognition. Some people give what I feel is more insidiously than that. They give to get control. They give 
because they want a seat on the board, because they want a place at the table. They give because they want to quietly and behind the scenes influence the conversation and they'll use their money to be the persuasive force. I think some people don't give for precisely that reason. They withhold their giving as a way of saying, listen, you're not gonna go my way, I'm gonna put my money over here in these interests. Some people give privately and personally to put other people in their debt, to have the upper hand in the conversation or in the, in the relationship. Jesus says you, you don't give for what you're gonna get back from other people. You don't give for what you're gonna get back in your spirit. I think sometimes we, I, give for pride reasons. To give myself a pat on the back, stroke my own ego and demonstrate at least to myself how morally superior I really am to everybody else. (laughs) Sometimes we give to convince ourselves that we really are as good as we think we are. Or conversely, I think some people give for guilt reasons. They give to convince themselves that they're not really as bad as they fear they are. They give to cover over their many mistakes like a a deadbeat dad who's trying to make up with his absence by cash. I know I'm a bad dad, but here's some a we. Or we give out of first world guilt that we have stuff and they don't and at least I'm trying to do something to make it right and balance the scale. We give for all sorts of reasons that have everything to do with us and nothing to do with the other person or with God And Jesus says, don't fall into that trap. Because if you give that way, if you give for recognition and honor, or if you give for control, or if you give for pride, or you give to soothe a guilty conscience, then when you give, those things will happen, and you will have been paid in full. You gave to get something out of it, and you got that thing. Now God owes you nothing. You're not really giving to God. You're giving to yourself. Jesus says that's not the kind of relationship God wants to have. God doesn't want you to use him to get something for you. Instead, he says in verse three, he says, when, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus says, if your temptation is to give so that you can get back something from other people, gratitude or honor or acknowledgement or a return gift or a thank you or a mention in the speech or whatever it is, if you're giving in order to get something back from people, Jesus says, then give in such a way that protects you from that ulterior motivation. That, that prevents you from making it about them, but makes it about God. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, I think he's exaggerating. He just means give with such discretion and privacy and secrecy. Give in anonymity. Don't let anyone know that you're giving or how much you're giving. Then it will be impossible for anybody to repay you for the gift that you gave. At that point, it becomes strictly for God. Now, I think there are times when we've, at least some in the church, have hidden behind that verse as a way of keeping other people out of their financial 
affairs. You know, we don't talk about money in the church because the left hand's not supposed to know what the right hand is doing. And if I tell you what I earn or what I give, you know, we've broken the rule. It's not about a rule. Jesus actually says in Matthew 5, 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says there's a tremendous value in people seeing the good that you do because they see what God has done in your life. They see the good that God is doing through your life and they glorify God and they, they worship God and just proclaim God's amazing for being able to transform the selfish person into a person of generosity and to, to make the changes they're making through their generosity. It directs all the glory to God. The problem is not whether or not people see that you give. The problem is when you give in order to be seen. I think we should all have people who know our books, who know our financial information, who can encourage us and support us and hold us accountable to the kind of generosity that the Jews modeled for God's sake and for our sake and for people's sake so we can become the kind of people God always created us to be and experience the life God always created us to experience. Jesus says if you can get to the place where your giving is only about God alone, then God who knows what you've done in secret will reward you. Word reward is kind of a scary word. It sounds like we're in it for mercenary reasons. It's kind of a Santa Claus God complex. If I'm nice, he'll give me good things. He'll give me a house and a job and health and wealth and success and prosperity, whatever. And if I'm naughty, I get a lump of coal. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. The reward for living the life God created you to live is to experience the lifestyle God created you to experience, which is a life of abundance and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, the deepest richest, most joy-filled, healthy, connected, empowered, peaceful, restful life you could ever imagine, regardless of your circumstances, you will be blessed. You will have connected your life to the way life was always supposed to be lived because we were created to be generous for God's sake. And so Jesus says, listen, a central component of your life with God is being generous with what he has given you. Be generous. I would want to ask those who are here this morning whose, whose intent is to follow Jesus with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, if you're not giving this morning generously, why, why not? Are you slow to recognize that God is the source of everything you have and to just express that as gratitude to him? Or are you um, hesitant to submit all that you have to his leadership because you frankly would like to use all that you have for your purposes? Or do you live in fear that if you give, there won't be enough for you and for your family? Or if your priorities got out of whack so that you sometimes think that actually this stuff matters more than your life with God. Or have you gotten disconnected from the justice issues of our world? Or, or unplugged from the sense of compassion whose heart breaks when you see somebody who's suffering? God invites us to give for our sake for our life with him, our life with ourselves, and for our life with the world to become the people he's created us to be. So if you're not giving, why not? 
And if you are giving, why are you giving? Are you giving to be recognized as generous? To enhance your reputation? To be seen as a spiritual person? To gain influence within the community? To stroke your own ego? To soothe your conscience? What is it that's motivating you to give? Because Jesus is inviting us into a very pure form of righteousness, of living rightly in our relationship with God. It says, while I recognize my decisions affect the people around me, I don't live for the approval of those around me. I don't live my spiritual life before an audience of my peers for their applause or honor or recognition or approval. He's inviting us into a life where we serve him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and resources for only one reason. Because God likes this. Let's pray together. Father, I, money's just such a complicated conversation in some ways. Uh, because it's so vital and connected to all of our lives and so central to everything that we do. And in our culture, it is so core even to our identity in some ways. I just pray, God, that you would uh, rewire us on the inside to become people who only ever think about our financial lives, our lives of generosity through the grid of what you would like for your eyes only for your applause, for your approval, exclusively. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.